All right, well, today we have been in a series that we're talking about spiritual formation. We've been talking about discipleship. We've been talking about how do we strengthen our relationship with God? What are the practices that we do in our life that draw us closer to God? So we're talking about a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline called silence and solitude. We began to talk about that last week, and I want to talk about that a little bit more today. But before I get to that part of the message, I just want to spend a minute or two talking about one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Probably one of the most famous chapters in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. A lot of people will say that is probably the deepest theology of the Bible. It's one of the chapters of the Bible that gives you a really good understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's a beautiful chapter, and that whole chapter is all about giving us assurance and the confidence that we have a relationship with God and what that means. And it's such a beautiful verse because of chapter because the very first verse says, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. What a powerful way to start a chapter by saying, if you follow Jesus, there is no condemnation in your life. That the guilt and the shame is gone. And then the chapter ends by saying that there is no power in the sky above or in the earth below that could separate you from the love of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. So on both ends of this famous chapter, you have on one hand, there's no condemnation for a follower of Jesus. And on the other hand, there's nothing that could separate you from the love of God. In the middle are these 38 verses all about the assurance that we have as followers of Jesus. It's a beautiful chapter and it's a powerful chapter. And that chapter just gives you the the illustration, the figure of God wrapping himself around followers of Jesus with his love and devotion and his grace and his mercy. It's a beautiful picture of the compassion that God has for each follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, a lot of Christians struggle with wondering, does God really love them? Or does God really care for them? Or is God really concerned for them? Or will God actually direct my steps? Many Christians will say that even though they can read something like Romans 8 that talks about there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, and God loves you so much that he says Jesus will never leave you, we struggle sometimes and we wonder, but does God really love me? Or we wonder, is God just disappointed in me? I think a lot of Christians kind of live their life with this low-grade feeling that God likes a lot of other people and loves a lot of other people, but for me, eh, he's a little bit disappointed. And it's hard to reconcile that feeling with Romans 8 that says nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because your sins are forgiven, your debt is forgiven, your guilt is forgiven. But yet sometimes we wonder, where is our relationship with God? And because we doubt our relationship with God, sometimes it totally impacts the way we relate to God. It it impacts how we come to before God in prayer. Or how we come before God in silence or solitude. We kind of have this idea that God's annoyed with me, so it's hard to really come before Him with total vulnerability and transparency. See, every Thursday morning, I meet three of my friends for breakfast. 
I know these three guys love me. I know they care for me. And I know they want the absolute best for my life. So I like meeting with them. I like being, spending time with them. Now, if I ever thought for one second that these guys really don't like me, or I thought they're just a little bit disappointed in me, or they're at least a little bit annoyed by me, do you think I would go to breakfast with them every Thursday? See, I wouldn't do that. Or maybe I would go out of guilt and I feel like an obligation, so I would go to breakfast. I wouldn't be myself. I wouldn't be open or honest or transparent. Instead, I would come as an actor trying to pretend I'm somebody else, so maybe they would like me more. And that's what happens to our relationship with God. We approach him sometimes like he's a friend that doesn't like us that much. So we're intimidated by how vulnerable we'll be with God. Or we're even intimidated by even spending time with God because we think, he really doesn't like me that much. And so over time, the time that we would spend with God or any time of silence or solitude that would spend with God becomes non-existent because we think, well, he really doesn't like me that much. The other day I was reading my Bible in the morning, and while I was reading my Bible, this question popped into my head, why are you reading the Bible? And now a lot of times when I'm reading or I'm spending time with God and a question pops in my head, I like to pay attention to those questions because throughout the Bible, you see God ask people a lot of questions. So if a question pops in my head, I think, oh, I wonder what my answer is. Now that should have been kind of an easy question for me. Why, why are you reading your Bible? But instead of having a quick answer, I sat there for a minute or two with different answers popping through my head. I mean, I thought for one reason, am I reading my Bible because I'm really enjoying it? Am I reading my Bible because it's just an obligation? It's something I'm supposed to do, especially in my profession. I mean, it'd look kind of bad if I'm a pastor and I don't read my Bible. Is that why I'm reading my Bible? Or am I, or am I reading my Bible just because I want to get my sermon prepared? So as I'm thinking to myself, why are you spending time with God this morning? Why do you carve out that time? It got me thinking, why do I do that? It also got me to remember a book that I read by Sky Jathani. It was a book published maybe 10 years ago. The book was called With. I liked the title and it had a good cover and I bought it. And it actually turned out to be a really good book. And what I like about the book, he talks in the book about four different ways that we often approach God. Four different postures that we have. Four, how am I saying this wrong? I got to think. Give me, give me one hot second. Okay, he talks about four different postures that we, the way we come before God, the way we relate to God. There's a word I wanted. He talks about four different ways that we relate to God. All of these four ways, they sound like they're, they got a little bit of truth in them, that they seem accurate. But in fact, all of them are wrong ways to approach God. See, one of the common ways that people approach God is what he calls life over God. And in this view of life over God, we view God as he's very predictable. There's really no surprises about God. This is a view of deism that they look at the way God created the world, kind of like God created the world, got it started, set up a bunch of rules and principles, and then he stepped away after the world was spinning and said, you all figure it out on your own. This is a view that, he, that the author called life over God, that really everything is calculated in the world and God is really not interested in having a personal relationship with anybody. He gave you some rules to follow in the Bible, follow those and kind of figure it out on your own. Then another way he says we sometimes approach Jesus is life for God. 
Where sometimes what we think is that God really is annoyed with me, so I better make him like me, so I'm going to do a bunch of really good things to kind of get his attention for him to like me. And so instead of doing things because God's called us to missions, we start doing things because we think, if I do that, God will value me more, and I'll be in better standing with God. So everything is about performance and work to try to make God like me. Then another way he says that we uh, do our relationship with Jesus is sometimes what he calls life under God, which is again the belief that God is kind of annoyed with me. So in order to get good things from God, I better behave and do some good things or follow the Bible or go to church. And if I maybe go to church, I might get a blessing. If I don't go to church, I got to watch out. I might get in trouble. And so our whole life is this calculated formula on how do I get what I want to get in our relationship with God? It's not a relationship at all. And then the final way he says that we approach our relationship with God is what he calls life from God. And I think life from God is kind of popular in our American culture. It's popular in our Western consumer-driven culture. In this category... People want the blessings from God, but they're really not that interested in a personal relationship with God. We'll often say that these are people who want to live in the kingdom of God, but they don't necessarily want the king. They want all the blessings of living in the kingdom of God, but that personal relationship with Jesus, they're not really sure about that. And so the whole way that you approach God is simply because I want something. In 2005, a popular sociologist, Christian Smith, he did this study on the, the teenagers at the time. So this is 2005. So he did this big research of all these teenagers that were, came from a religious family or a church-going family to kind of figure out what values did they have and what morals did they have and what principles did they have. And after all this research, to figure out how these younger generations, how they viewed God, he determined that they view God in two ways. Number one, they viewed God as a divine butler. And number two, they viewed God as a cosmic therapist. For this younger generation, they saw God as a butler just there to serve you and to give you whatever you wanted and to give you whatever you thought you needed. And as a therapist to kind of fix all of your problems for you. And so in this view that this younger generation had, their, primarily, their primary concern was that they just would be happy. They thought that was God's view towards them, that God just wanted them to be happy and to avoid conflict and to avoid hard things in their life. They didn't have a paradigm for God wants you to mature or grow or to have a relationship with him. And so after this doctor put together all this study together, people started saying to him, where did these kids get that view? How did they determine that view? Where did they get that idea that God is just a butler waiting to serve you or a therapist waiting to take care of your problems? And do you know what his answer was? His answer was they got it from their parents. That generationally, sometimes we pass that down unintentionally, that God just exists to take care of your problems. And when things don't turn out like you want it to, it's pretty easy to get disappointed in God. So how are you supposed to relate to God? What was God's intention for how our posture would be before him? How did God want us to react to him? 
See, each of those plans that I talked about, they looked at seeking God as only a way to use God, to simply get something from God. But God's intention from the very beginning is that our posture towards Him or our goal would be simply to be with God. That our goal is simply to have a relationship with God. Not just to get something from Him, but that Jesus came to this earth to reconcile us so we could have a relationship with God. And that is why we approach Jesus. That's why we come before God. It's for that relationship. But the big question that sometimes we have to ask is, is it possible to live your entire Christian life without really understanding the posture that you should have before God? See, a lot of people, this author points out, they just jump from one of those four different ways of approaching God from one to the other, kind of hoping that one of these days they'll figure out one of those is going to work. And they spend their whole entire life just thinking that God should give them something. Instead, what God has given to each of us is a relationship with Him. That to be with God is the goal. A couple weeks ago, I read this quote by John Piper, and I like this quote a lot, so I'm going to read it again. Because I think it's a good quote, and it's one of those quotes that can kind of summarize what I could probably say in 2,000 words I can say in a sentence. But it doesn't mean you're getting out early. But it's a quote that really summarizes things well. And it's a quote that kind of shocks you a little bit. He says, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. The gospel message, what Jesus came to do, is to get us to a relationship with God. And I'm going to read the full quote. There's some more that goes around this quote. I just wanted to read the part that just kind of jumps out at you. What John Piper says, he says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. See, what he's saying here is that God didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross so you could go to heaven and keep on doing whatever you wanted to do whenever you wanted to do. And God, oh, let me continue. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. That's a hard, ver- the far- hard sentence to sometimes read. Because sometimes we've sold Christianity as just a way to get to heaven, but we've neglected that God's going to be there and that Jesus is going to be there. It's sometimes good to ask the question, would you be disappointed if you got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there or God wasn't there? Because unfortunately, I think sometimes in our culture, we kind of sell heaven as just the big reward, but we forget God's going to be there and Jesus is going to be there. And I think it's a good question to ask, not to punish people, but to say, do you know why we come before God to remind us that we have this relationship with God that is the most valuable thing that we could ever have? Then the quote goes on to say, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. 
That's what the gospel does. The gospel changes our desires. So what we want more than anything else is to be with God. That's the goal of our posture before God is to be with him. Not just to avoid hell and go to heaven, but to be with God. And that's why we take spiritual formation in our church community so seriously. Why we take a whole series to talk about how do we approach God. What are different practices that we do before God. Talk about prayer and silence and solitude and and repentance and dealing with your past. Why we talk about these things is because these are the obstacles that God wants to remove in our life so we can have this better relationship with Him. So we desire God above everything else. And as we desire God, the desires that we have for things that we shouldn't start to decrease. And our desire for God continues to increase. So now to get to the message, it's about silence and solitude. Spending time with God alone or carving out time in your schedule to say, I want to just spend time with God in silence or solitude. And that's something that some of us get really uncomfortable talking about or hearing about. Like, I could never do that. I like to be busy. But just to come before God quietly and let him speak to you or to lead you. I think it's an art or it's a practice that sometimes we lose in our busy world. Like to say, well, I'll come before God, but I'm going to come with a Bible and a book and a prayer list, and that's great, and we should do that. That's another practice we'll talk about. But sometimes we see the posture in the Bible of Jesus and other disciples is to come before God quietly and to let him speak to you. We even see Jesus throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospel. We saw Jesus over and over again. He would take time to be alone with God. And now if Jesus is going to do this, who is the Son of God, who's God himself, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, if he needs to spend time alone with God, I think that's a good prototype that we should do that as well. We see in Mark 1, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Luke 5, Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. Luke 6 On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He spent the night praying to God. Jesus definitely liked silence and solitude and alone time with God. Some of you are familiar with the story in Matthew 4 where Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and the enemy comes in, the devil comes in to tempt him with three questions. And we read in Matthew 4, 1 through 2, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted, and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. And throughout the rest of the passage, the enemy keeps coming back to Jesus and saying, If you are. Now to fully understand this passage, we've got to back up to Matthew 3. What happened in Matthew 3? In Matthew 3, Jesus gets baptized. And when he gets baptized and he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes on him and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, what does he do? The Holy Spirit leads him into the desert for a time to be alone with God. Now, when Jesus was alone with God, he added fasting into the mix. Now, you can do that part of fasting with with silence and solitude, but that's not a requirement that you have to fast to be alone with God. But Jesus did it in this situation. 
And so Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And the word wilderness is an interesting word because it can also be translated a quiet place. Or it can be translated a place that is unpopulated. Or translated as a place of quiet. And that's what Jesus would do. You see, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into this place of quiet time to prepare him. See, quite often the silence and solitude that we spend with God is to prepare us or it's to restore us. So Jesus went off to be alone with the Holy Spirit, to be with God, to be prepared. Why? Because the enemy was going to come into Jesus and he's going to tempt him three different ways and tell him three different lies. And Jesus needed to be prepared. Jesus needed to have strength. And so the way that he gained strength was to spend time alone with God in silence and solitude so he could have his strength in discernment that when he was faced with the lies of the enemy that he would know the truth. And it was from that posture that Jesus had of being silent before God that he received his strength so when the enemy lied to him he could come back with the truth of what the word of God says. And then after he had that confrontation with the enemy and Jesus stood and stood his ground and went toe-to-toe with the enemy, it says in verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. We see in the same time that you can spend silence and solitude that God will also minister to you. So you see that pattern throughout Scripture that silence and solitude is a time of preparation as well as a time of restoration. That during those times that God does big works in our heart to prepare us as well as to restore us. Another character in the Bible that we see spent time in silence and solitude was the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. And I like Elijah. And I like him because the book of James says, in James five seventeen, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The Bible's telling us that Elijah is kind of like the rest of the human race. We have a really good day one day, and the next day we feel pretty defeated and down. Elijah's the one character that he saw this great victory that the Lord did. He saw this huge miracle that God did, and you would think he would be so confident. But then the next day he wanted to die. So the Bible says Elijah's like us. Because God understands human nature. He understands one minute we can be incredibly encouraged and optimistic and the next minute we can feel incredibly defeated. And that's what the life was like for the prophet Elijah. See, Elijah was called to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. A little biblical history, the, the the, the nation of Israel at one point was divided into two different kingdoms. You have the southern kingdom and you have the northern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom was two of the tribes of Israel and the northern kingdom was the ten tribes and the, the northern kingdom was, was pretty corrupt. Did a lot of things bad. The south kingdom, well, they weren't too good either but they looked, they looked really good compared to the northern kingdom. But the northern kingdom had a lot of problems. And so Elijah was called to be a prophet to the northern kingdom to tell the people what they were doing wrong and to try to get them to turn and repent for their sins and turn their hearts to God. So Elijah has a pretty tough job up ahead of him. And the problem, and so uh, in Kings, in First Kings seventeen, it tells about Elijah had to go to the king of this northern tribe, and the king's name is Ahab. Now Ahab is probably a pretty good king, but his problem is his wife. It's not an excuse for anybody, but for Ahab, he did have a problem. His wife was Jezebel, 
And her problem was she was a Baal worshiper. Baal was a false god back in the Old Testament. And I like to refer to Baal as he was a backup god. He was where the Israelites went to if they didn't think God was taking care of them. See, Baal was known as a god of, wind, a god of water and of rain. So a lot of the Israelites, they did worship God. They wanted to focus on God. But if God didn't deliver for them what they really wanted, well, then they would like go off and they go back to Baal and say, hey, Baal, you know, it's not raining. We need it for our crops. So they would pray to this false God and then they would hope that he would deliver to them what they wanted. But Jezebel, she was all over Baal and thought that was just the way to go. And so the Israelites had a king that was sort of godly and then they had the king's wife and it was just a bad mix. So Elijah's job is to try to get the people of Israel to repent of their ways and get Ahab and Jezebel to repent, and things don't go too well. So in 1 Kings 17, God has Elijah go to Ahab and tell him that God's had enough, and they're not going to see rain for three more years, that a drought is going to happen to their land and to their community. And the reason this is going to happen is because God is showing them that not only he will not let it rain, but also to show them that their backup plan cannot provide for them as well. So Elijah goes before Ahab. And before he goes before Ahab, when he goes before Ahab and he talks to the uh, people, he says to the people of Israel, this is a good verse in 1 Kings 18. I don't like, all right, I'm out of order. All right, forget that last second. So Elijah goes before Ahab and he tells him it's not going to rain for three years. You're not going to see any rain for three years. And then, and then God says to Elijah, I need you to go by this certain brook, Kirith Brook. And so while they're having the drought in Israel for three years, Elijah goes beside this brook for three years to spend three years in silence and solitude with God alone, and God's going to take care of him. That's a long time to be alone. But the entire time God took care of him, and the reason that God did that is again to prepare Elijah. Because Elijah was going to have one of the biggest confrontations between the power of darkness and the power of God that we've seen in the Old Testament. So for three years, Elijah is going to go to this quiet place beside this brook to be prepared by God for this battle. So after three years, God comes to Elijah and says, okay, now it's time for you to go to King Ahab. We want to see this confrontation happen. And so Elijah calls all the people to come together at Mark Carmel. And in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, there's a powerful scripture. It says, Elijah stood in front of the people of Israel and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, then follow him. He stood before the people and said, decide. Make up your mind. Either follow God or don't follow God. May do it 100% or don't do it at all. And he stands before the people of Israel. And he tells them, okay, now this is what we're going to do. We're going to see whose God is really powerful. Which God can provide the rain, which God can provide the power. So he says to the people that, that are worshiping Baal, he says, oh, what I want you to do, build an altar. Build this really big altar, get a bull to sacrifice, cut up the bull, put it on the altar. And after you get that bull on the altar, then I want you to pray to your God and ask God to start that thing on fire. 
So the people worshiping Baal said, no problem. They did exactly as Elijah said. They built the altar, put the bull on it, and they started praying in the morning for the fire to come down. It never did. They waited all afternoon. It never happened. So then Elijah said, well, I'll show you what I'm going to do. So Elijah had his men built an altar before God, put a bull on there to sacrifice, and then he poured water over the entire thing. And they dug like a little canal around it, and they filled that entire thing with water. And then Elijah prayed, and that sacrifice to God started on fire and burned up every drop of water. See that power encounter. I mean, could you imagine if you're Elijah and you're standing there and you had your people build an altar, put a bull on it, water over the entire thing, and God sends fire from heaven down and burns up the entire offering. That is pretty powerful. You don't see that every day. You probably can go your whole lifetime and never see that. You'd think Elijah would have the confidence, like, wow, that's amazing. Look what God just did. So a few other details happened after that. But then we get to 1 Kings 19. And it says, Ahab went home. Let me read it to you, 1 Kings 19, 1 to 5. It says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow, I have not killed you as you have killed them. Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servants there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take me my life for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Elijah has this huge victory. He sees this incredible miracle, and Jezebel threatens to kill him, and suddenly Elijah unravels, and he wants to die. But Elijah does the right thing. He goes into the wilderness. He goes to spend time alone with God so he can pour out his heart before God. And he tells God exactly what's going on. And says to God, I want to die. And how does God respond to him? Does God scold him? No. Does God say to him, hey, come on, look what you saw yesterday. No, God doesn't do that. God responds to Elijah with incredible mercy and with incredible compassion. Let me read from verse 5 through 18. It says, Then Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead of you will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of the prophets. 
I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told them. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told them, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. So here again, Elijah is in a place of silence and solitude, a place that he needs restoration, a place that he feels defeated and he comes before to the point where he says, God, just take my life now. I want to kind of look to see what happened to Elijah, to slow down and to see how God dealt with Elijah, not as a template to say every time you come before God in silence and solitude, the same thing will happen, but to show you how God ministered to Elijah at this place of brokenness. See, the one first thing that Elijah did when he approached God in time of silence is he came honestly. He came before God honestly and told God what was going on in his life. And sometimes that's the best way to come before God, to just tell him honestly how you feel. Because after he was able to tell God how he felt, then the next chat verse tells us that he was able to get some rest. He was able to sleep. Sometimes we carry things around with us so much that we never get them off our chest, so to speak. It just stirs us and stirs us. But once Elijah got that off his chest, gave it to God, he's able to find some peace. He's able to find some rest. And then what does God do? He gives Elijah nourishment. He sends an angel to him to feed him, to give him what he needs, and to even get him extra food. And the angel even said to Elijah, you're going to need to eat this because you've got to travel to a different place. I think sometimes we come before God, we tell him our need, and we expect God to instantly take it away to fix it. But we see in here, God gave Elijah enough strength to go to the next place where God would bring the full restoration that Elijah needed. But it's going to take longer than a day. Elijah actually had to spend 40 days and 40 nights seeking God to get the answer that he was really looking for, to get the restoration that he really needed. But what we see is that God gave him the strength to continue the journey. That God didn't stop giving him the strength. So God draws Elijah to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is so significant that the, because that place is a representation of God's presence. That's what God did in the time of silence and solitude. He called Elijah into his presence. He said, I'm going to give you the nourishment and the strength to come before me. And what happens when Elijah gets before God? God speaks to him. And God asks him a question. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? After 40 days and 40 nights of being alone with God, God asked him a question and said, why are you here? And then what happens next is remarkable because what does Elijah do? He shares his real feelings of why he is there. 
40 days earlier, he just said, I want to die. But now Elijah says, I've served you. I've done what you've asked me to do. And now I feel like the other people want to kill me. I think we've all had those days. And God, I, I think I'm doing what you're calling me to do, but I feel defeated. And Elijah's able to name what is going on inside of him and present it before God. And that's such a powerful thing to do because I think sometimes we actually ignore sometimes the feelings that we're actually having. But being in the presence of God, God drew it out of Elijah. And that is so important because in Psalm 55, verse 22, it says, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And sometimes I think we have a hard time casting our cares on God because we're not really sure what our cares are. We're not really sure what we're caring. We're not really sure what's bothering us. We just know we're mad or we know we're ornery. And we have a hard time casting it on God because we don't know what we're really feeling. But Elijah was able to spend that time before God so he could be open and raw and vulnerable before God and give his cast it on God. Then once again, God said to him, what are you doing here? God asked him again the same question. He gave the same answer, but I think it's God just saying, I want to understand you even more. So then God speaks again and he says to Elijah in 11 and 13, he says, go out and stand before me in the mountain. So Elijah goes out on the mountain and this is a powerful picture. You can imagine Elijah standing there and it gets incredibly windy, windy enough that it's going to shatter the mountains. And it says, but God wasn't there. Then there's an earthquake. It says, but God wasn't an earthquake. And there's a fire, and it said God wasn't in the fire. These huge manifestations that Elijah was looking for, God wasn't in them for him. You'd have thought when he saw the wind and the fire and the earthquake, you'd have been like, wow, that's God. But God wasn't in those. It wasn't until Elijah heard the whisper of God's voice that he knew God was there. It was the whisper that changed Elijah's heart. It was the gentle whisper that Elijah heard that transformed him. See, sometimes we're looking for God in big manifestations. We look for him in the wind or in the fire or in the earthquake or the big miracle, what we expect to happen. We expect that is where we're going to see God and know God. But for Elijah, it was the gentle whisper of God that changed his life. But so often, we're seeking the big manifestation instead of seeking the time alone with God to really hear his voice, to hear the gentle whisper, to hear his gentle whisper in the pages of the Bible, to hear God speak to us that way, that is what captivated Elijah's heart. And that's what transformed his life, the gentle whisper. Because it says Elijah wrapped himself in his cloak the sign of humility because he knew he was standing before God. The scripture doesn't even tell us what the gentle whisper was. It doesn't even tell us what God said. 
but we know it changed his life. And I think that's significant because I think sometimes we hear God, but we really don't know what he said, but it changes our life. Or sometimes we can read the Bible and we're not really sure what it said, but we know it did something in us. It's that supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that changes our heart and changes our life, and we're not even sure why it happened. But you got to get to that quiet place to be with God, to hear that gentle whisper. That's the draw for silence and solitude, to come before God and to hear Him speak in that gentle whisper, to prepare us and to restore us. And the beauty of that whole scripture is to see how God led Elijah through the process. He took him from being honest. He fed him and he nourished him. He got him to understand what was going on. And then he spoke to him and brought restoration. And then at the end of that section of scripture, it says, and God told him to go back to where you came from. The completion of the time of restoration that you can now go back. But it was the gentle whisper of God that he heard that transformed his life. Amen. So God, I do thank you for your gentle whisper. God, I thank you that you are a God who speaks to us in many different ways. And Lord, I thank you when you speak, there is transformation. So God, I pray for each person listening to me, Lord, that you would be with them and their families, that you would encourage them and strengthen them. That you, Lord, you draw us into a deeper relationship with you that we desire you more than anything else. Lord, we know there's a lot of things in this world competing for our attention and competing for our affections and competing for our desires. And sometimes, Lord, we're not even aware of what's happening. But God, we come before you and I pray, Lord, that you transform each of our hearts. So we desire you more than anything else. God, would you draw us into that place of stillness, into that place of quiet and solitude so we can hear your gentle whisper. Lord, I pray that you administer to each person listening to me right now. That you'd prepare us and restore us through your gentle whisper. In Jesus' name, amen.